With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe-Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lock-away channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Joe Biden won the presidential election with the support of over 60 percent of Latino voters. And those votes were especially critical in states like Arizona and Nevada. But if you read some of the headlines following the election, you might get the sense that Latinos were more of a hindrance than a help to Democrats. You might also get the sense that no one anticipated Donald Trump's improvement among some Latino voters. That's not true either. I spoke with Jenny Medina and Patty Maze of The New York Times about what really happened, why it matters, and the role Latino reporters played in telling the story of this incredible election. Jenny, what is your theory of the case of what happened with Latino voters in this election? Oh, it's still too early for me to have a, a unified theory of the case. Part of me thinks like this was exactly what has happened historically. Like this is no different than what's happened in history where 30% of Latinos more or less vote for a Republican. The thing that's so shocking, I think, to everybody is that even with Trump, even with somebody who has you know, used demagoguery and used racist rhetoric, that there was still 30%. I think that's shocking to lots of people, both Latinos and non-Latinos. But I used to joke, or I still joke, that any Latino you talk to has at least one family member who's a Trumper. Every single person I know, no matter if they live in East LA or New York or wherever, they have at least one relative who's there. So it's sort of like, well, if you know the lay of the land, this is all very predictable. Mm -hmm. Patty? I think maybe 2016 was an aberration that we think was going to be historical, right? If you build off of what you think is going to happen in 2020 based on 2016, you might forget that in 2016, then-candidate 
Trump used all that rhetoric about immigration, about, you know, Mexicans across the border and turned off a lot of people who might have otherwise voted for a Republican in that election. And they were Latinos in many cases. And in the case of Florida, right, because I come from a South Florida lens, there was a lot of hard feelings still over how Trump had sort of vanquished Marco Rubio and even Jeb Bush, both who are sort of considered favorite sons, uh, beloved by the Cuban Americans in Miami, who may have not voted for Trump in 16. That doesn't mean they voted for Hillary Clinton. Maybe they sat out the election. Maybe they voted third party. But Clinton's margins in 16 may have been an aberration in how large they were. And then I think some people sort of thought that's what the margin would be with Trump the second time around. And they didn't consider that he would have four years under his belt of policies that in some cases people like, and that people would revert to, okay, well, he's been president. He's maybe not that unusual of a candidate now that he's been in office for four years. And like Jenny said, they are the people in your family who are Republicans or who were leaning towards Trump anyway, and now are just openly doing so. I think also part of what happens, Patty, is that there's what happens inside of our community. And then there's the analysis of people outside of our communities where there's this assumption that immigration is a motivating factor for all of us. And that when we hear the president's rhetoric, that we all internalize it as applying to us. What I found in my reporting was there are a lot of people who felt very apart from what he was saying. A lot of Latinos who felt he's saying that about someone else. Not about me. If immigration was the gateway issue in the past where you speak nicely about immigrants so that immigrant populations or the children of immigrants will listen to your policies on the other subjects, right? Even if immigration is not their top issue. This was an election where it wasn't like Joe Biden was talking about immigration much either because he was the vice president for Barack Obama, whom, you know, Jorge Ramos called the deporter in chief. And so how do you defend that? So this was not an election where anyone wanted to talk about immigration. And to your broader point, I think not just on immigration, Alicia, it's the Latino vote. Like, does it exist? What does it mean? And why does it have to be immigration driven when polls and reporting show that the economy, education, religion, healthcare matter just as much, as, if not more? Jenny? The thing that I found fascinating every time I went out reporting on Latino Trump supporters is that there's them, those people that Trump is talking about, and there's me and my people. And those two things are not aligned. I grew up in California. I grew up in the Prop 187 era where there was lots of anti-immigrant sentiment. I'm surprised. I remember going to, to Miami in January and having coffee with Patty and being like, wow, because I had been at an evangelical church talking to hundreds of Trump supporters and every single one said the president's not talking about me. They also said that they didn't know people who were undocumented, which I never knew if I believe that or if they are deluding themselves or what. But I found that fascinating because if you're in California, if you're in Arizona and you're Latino, there's no way you don't know somebody who's undocumented. So it's just these regional differences are so, so major. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads. What did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. 
Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight, and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the ball is filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer, M&M's for all fun kind. A majority of Latino voters did vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. They played a critical role in states like Arizona, like Nevada. Uh, They played in Pennsylvania. Part of my theory of what happened is that because Florida went first, what happened in Miami-Dade set the narrative about Latinos around the country in the eyes of people who don't know our communities that well. And we're providing a lot of that analysis. And it then became a wave of headlines that took what was a part of the story, because I think there are two parts of the story. There's both the truth that Latinos turned out in incredible numbers for Democrats and the truth that Donald Trump made inroads among some communities within the Latino community. Both things can be true. They didn't get weighted equally in the way that we talked about it. But I also think, you know, most of the national media is based on the East Coast. So there's a tendency to see things through that lens. Miami comes in first. Miami is where people tend to think of a power center of Latinos being. Latinos in Miami are much more powerful than Latinos elsewhere. But then when you step back, as you're saying, Alicia, the majority of Latino voters are actually not in Florida. They're they're all over the Southwest. They're also in the in the Rust Belt. They made a difference not only in Pennsylvania, but I think also maybe even in Wisconsin. And we tend to forget about those places or we tend to gloss over them really easily. And I do think a lot of that has to do just based on where the national media is based. Let's talk then, Jenny, about what did happen in Arizona because that story provides such a narrative counterweight to what we saw happening in Florida, especially because it was a story that was 10 years in the making. Mm -hmm. You have to go back to Senate Bill 1070, which was known as the show me your papers law and came at the same time period as Sheriff Joe Arpaio. So there was this huge anti-immigrant sentiment 
within the government of Arizona. And all these young people, some undocumented themselves, some not, took to the streets. They did tons of protest, and then they started to organize. There are, I would say, half a dozen organizations that came out of that era that now registered people to vote in Arizona, knocked on doors to get people out to vote, sort of sold the messaging to get people to vote, not just for Biden, but for people down ballot. They were really trying to flip the state legislature. And a lot of these organizations, by the way, are not big Joe Biden fans. I mean, they like Biden better than Trump, and they certainly wanted to get Trump out of office. But it was much more about getting Trump out of office than voting for Biden. Right. It's what a lot of people have called a one-time Biden coalition, that the group of people who voted this time for Joe Biden are not going to be there in four years in the same formation because Donald Trump will not be on the ballot, which means the Democrats are going to have to reconfigure a lot of their strategy. Well, and that's where the Florida story matters, not for the national narrative of this election, but the fact that they were so off in what they thought was going to happen in Florida from the Democratic Party side that they lost so big to Trump. I mean, even those of us who were covering it and knew that, that Trump was going to do better than he had in 2016 in South Florida, et cetera, the, he did so much better than people thought with so many in so many more places that it was real devastating blow to the Florida Democratic Party. And so that just reinforces your point that where does the party go from here? Because this was such a sort of unique set of circumstances nationally and in this state sort of makes it look bleak um, for the future of Democrats. I think one of the oversimplifications coming out of this election became this idea that it was only Cuban and Cuban-Americans in South Florida that voted for Donald Trump. And I thought that your reporting out of Arizona helped broaden our understanding of who Latinos who are voting for Trump really were. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that is actually perhaps most significant is not the Florida Trump supporters. We sort of knew that they were there, but the place, the people elsewhere, the people in Arizona, the people in Texas, those are significant populations that Democrats I think it is fair to say that Democrats took for granted. They thought they would vote like Black voters have voted historically, 90% for Democrats. And although there are a lot of them, but Alicia, as you said, it's kind of hard to find them or it's kind of hard to find them and have them open up about why they think the way they think. So what did you glean from those who were willing to speak with you? Well, there is a sense of like counterculture, like I'm cool because I vote for Trump. It's kind of like punk rock cool. Like I'm different. There is also, I hesitate to use the word machismo because people get like, oh, we can't say machismo, but it is, it's machismo. The sense that like, he's a boss, he's a millionaire. He made himself, I believe in this up by your bootstraps philosophy. If he can be a millionaire, I can be a millionaire. I love the way he was on The Apprentice. When I was reporting the story about men who support Trump, The Apprentice came up in almost every conversation. They would bring up having seen him on The Apprentice as teenagers or as young men. And then, of course, there's also the religious aspect. There's a whole bunch of people who support President Trump because of his supposed stance on abortion and appointing members to the court who are going to support pro-life policies. That was a huge factor that I would hear from people over and over again. 
I did not hear in Arizona a massive sense of anti-socialism. I mean, there's a little bit of that, but there's not the obsessiveness of it as there is, I think, in South Florida. Patty, that was a message that was tailored for Cuban voters, to some extent, Venezuelan voters, quiet overtures to Nicaraguans, to Colombians. It spread, though, that socialism. I mean, it became bigger than just Cuban voters. We saw this in 2018 work in Florida. It helped uh, Ron DeSantis get elected. And the playbook was just nationalized afterwards without Democrats having an, a response to it. But my argument was it works for non-Hispanic voters. I was interviewing seniors in Fort Myers, which is very Republican part of Florida. And they were voting for Mr. Trump and saying it was because they uh, are against socialism. And this was an Anglo voter with nothing to do with Latinos and nothing to do with South Florida. So I think there is a spillover effect to people who remember the Cold War, to Midwestern types. However, in Miami, I think you're right. There was sort of a Cuban solidarity effect that I think people forget about with a lot of other Latin Americans who sort of also feel like they left places that are either in danger or under threat from the left. And so Venezuelans are not that many voters, but Colombians are. There's a lot more Colombian voters in in South Florida than there are Venezuelans. And so that appealed to them too. Your earlier point about how Latinos out West were not voting like people expected them to made me think about Puerto Ricans. The socialism message in Florida was not tailored to Puerto Ricans at all, but they have a lot of sort of that evangelical crossover that Jenny was talking about. And also, I remember being in Puerto Rico one of the times that Trump said he was the best thing that ever happened to Puerto Rico and having to interview people about that comment. And that was on the island, not, you know, the people on the island can't vote for president, the ones in the states can. But Puerto Ricans are able to say, you know, when the president, he was calling all Puerto Rican leaders corrupt. And they were saying, well, we think our government on the island has some corruption problems. And he's right about that. We don't like his style. We don't think he should come in and tell us what to do. But they're able to sort of differentiate between the things that they agree with Trump on and the things they don't. And at the end of the day, he made some inroads with Puerto Ricans in Central Florida. Whether it was for that reason or not, I don't know, because I haven't gone to ask them after the election. But I think it's that sort of level of nuance that is often missing from some of the national political reporting, especially from people who don't live in those communities and are just not familiar with Latinos being just as complicated as everybody else. I think the economy played for so many people. That's what they wanted to know. And they felt like they weren't hearing from the Biden campaign. And that's what a lot of people gave Trump credit for. Their unemployment rate for Latinos was at a historic low before the coronavirus. And Trump took a lot of credit for that. And people bought it. Part of what I was hearing about Texas going into the election was like, what would happen if Democrats came within one point of winning the state, but didn't clinch it? That there would be a lot of blame gaming about who visited the state, who didn't visit the state, where money was spent. But that the flip side was that if they were able to come really, really close, that there would be the argument made that Texas was the next Arizona, that you had to look at the organizing model of what happened in Arizona, the investment that was made in Arizona, and apply it to Texas. What I have not been certain of is that that model is transposable, in part because you had an inciting incident like SB 1070 in Arizona. And I don't know if you need that 
that one big event that feels cataclysmic in order to incite the type of organizing necessary to turn a state the size of Texas blue. But a lot of people thought that the El Paso shooting was going to be that. I talked to lots of Democrats in the fall of 2019 who thought that El Paso was going to be for Texas what 187 was for California and what 1070 was for Arizona. This, as you just described it, a cataclysmic event that changed people's minds, that motivated them politically. That never turned out to be true. I mean, some polls showed that Latinos across the board felt more racism, but it was never something that people organized around. And I relying on my colleagues who have spent way more time there than me. I mean, there were Latinos in El Paso who the main thing they wanted to do after that shooting was go out and buy a gun for themselves. I wonder for both of you, how much you bring your Latina identity and your Latina upbringing to the reporting that you do. I think it comes up a lot in part because Miami is as bilingual as it is. Some of my interviews just start in Spanish and then you can hear my Venezuelan accent. And so people, either they bring it up or then I guess their accent and they wonder how I know that they're Cuban or Colombian or Nicaraguan or whatever the case may be. And so that leads down the whole, like, there's a point of connection there. It's just an inevitable, they know I'm an immigrant. When I would interview some people and they would realize I'm Venezuelan, they would bring up the socialism thing for or against or whatever the case may be. They don't have to explain it to you in the same way. There's like a shorthand. And so I feel like when you then write the story, you have to remind yourself that your readers don't get the shorthand. And so you can sort of spell it out in the quotes from the interview, right? Like they mean this because they are from so-and-so, they fled this, et cetera. But there's a constant, that code switching that is happening all the time when, when you're going from the interview and then listening to the tape and then writing it on the page where you have to remember, not everybody understands where we were coming from mm-hmm. from this conversation. This happened a lot in Arizona where people would be like, where are you from? Where's your family from? And my Spanish kind of stinks. I mean, it's decent, but I have bad grammar and I speak what I call pocho Spanish. And I used to be pretty ashamed of it. But now like lots of people that I'm talking to also speak pocho Spanish. So nobody cares. And even native Spanish speakers who speak perfect Spanish, most of them are kind enough that they don't bother with my grammar. But then so people start to ask me questions like, where am I from? Where's my family from? How do you answer that question? I usually just tell people my parents immigrated from Panama and that I grew up in LA. The way that I started to think about this job, the job of covering politics, and I was mostly covering voters as opposed to the candidates, is trying to think of it as being a translator for readers of the New York Times. Here's this person I've met who's going to share with me what they think. And of course, I can't possibly understand their totality of their life, but I can understand the context and I can ask them about the context, and I'm going to translate that into a way that is fair and accurate for readers. I think it is extremely hard to do, and it's really easy to think that you screwed up. I mean, for me, it's easy to think I've screwed up. Well, I I think there are limits to anecdotal reporting. That's yes. part of the challenge. But the, there's this whole discussion in our media world about polling, and does polling stink or not? I just don't really think it's an either or proposition. We have to have both polling and anecdotal reporting. And the best 
stories, the best reporting we can do marries both of those things, right? And that's our job is to try to think about both what the polling is showing and what we are seeing on the ground. Jenny probably remembers this from staff meetings where I was like, you know, I know what the polls say in Florida. And to me, that just means that it's tied. It's always tied. But Miami feels Trumpy. And I don't know what what to make of that because I have not traveled across the state of Florida, right? And so then we had a colleague flying to Tampa and another one go to Orlando and they both had the same conclusions. Like they're like, I know what you mean now. Tampa feels Trumpy. Orlando feels Trumpy. But that is a feeling. It is a something you can't really put your finger on. And so they also then started looking at the polling being like, okay, this is either tied, but it's not, you know, Biden's not up by four. Like give me a break. And when it comes to Latinos, we definitely need polling, but we need good polling. You can't have a sample size of Latinos that is tiny in a state, especially where you have lots of different types of Latinos like you do in Florida. Like every time you see one of those polls, you sort of like roll your eyes and be like, they talked to two Cubans and a Puerto Rican and called it a day. But I will say the feeling that you, you know, as reporters, you also have to not dismiss it. Florida felt Trumpy. It was not made up. Like there was not a figment of our imaginations. Like that was actually happening. Patty, in addition to your colleagues at the Times, one of the things that I loved watching from afar was the fact that there was a cohort of Latino reporters reporting from South Florida, that there was you yes. and Sabrina Rodriguez, who's now at Politico, that there was Bianca Padron, who's at uh, Miami Herald, which is where you were in one of your previous lives. Did that make the experience different? Yes. And I believe the LA Times sent people to Florida too. And here's why. When I was at the Miami Herald, where I spent you know, the first 10 years of my career, and I was named the political writer right before Tina, political writer for the Miami Herald. And I remember even before I got that job, doing a lot of the sort of translation, you know, work that Jenny was talking about, also literally translation work, um, but also having access to a part of the campaign that monolingual reporters could not, which was all the stuff that happens in Spanish language media, right? On the radio, where the campaign starts much earlier, because there's like all these like time to fill on the air that they do 24 hours of current events. And so like candidates are going there all the time. Um, and it was a lot to be the only Spanish speaker who would go to Tallahassee for the legislative session. Like when that immigration bill was attempted to be passed in 2011, I was the only Spanish speaker in the Tallahassee press corps. And so, like, who could speak to the immigrants who were praying in the lobby of the Capitol, but the, the girl from Miami who was, you know, there and happened to I have this fall in her lap? It's not that way anymore because you have Bianca and Sabrina and just more, more bilingual people and in general people who decided, like, to spend more time with this community. Jenny and I wrote a story about disinformation in Spanish because she and I saw it part of the country and we knew we were about to get beat by political on it, but we still wanted to do it. But it was nice that other people were also writing about it, you know? And I remember Sabrina and Bianca and I ended up at an Obama off the record mini campaign stop towards the end of the season. And it was like just the three of us reporters, you know, and um, it felt nice. You know, you sort of have like a little cohort of, of friends who all support each other and, and can understand all of this stuff that we're talking about without having anybody explain it to them. Jenny, your work has been described as finding the humanity in tragedy. I wonder how you took that skill and applied it to this new assignment. The way that I approached this job was to talk to people. I mean, that sounds so simplistic, but really, when I agreed, when I decided that I was going to take this job, 
the way that I wanted to approach it was by talking to voters, not doing like diner stories that we all mock and rightly make fun of, but by just talking to lots of different people. Like I was genuinely curious what people think and why they think it. And that's what I did. I just, what, what do you think about this and why? I spent a lot of time asking why. You spend time talking to people who you disagree with, right? Like it's the nature of the job that you're going to talk to people who don't see the things the same way as you do, obviously. But so learning how to listen to people who my friends would be appalled by was a really interesting and enlightening thing. There was this podcast that we did, an episode of The Daily that we did that you mentioned in Arizona that was partly about how Arizona has turned blue over the last 10 years and that ended with this one Trump supporter who we randomly found outside of a Trump Latinos for Trump campaign office. And he was really generous with his time and with his thoughts. And I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. We got a lot of great feedback. The thing that sticks out in my mind whenever I think about it is that the criticism that I heard from friends and from others was that we did too much to humanize him. And I thought that was sort of appalling and devastatingly sad to say that humanizing a Trump supporter was a negative thing. It's just absolutely mind-blowing and devastating to me. It does not speak well for the future of our country. What did I miss? Anything? Appreciation for the Latino reporters. Go, go. No, but well, that was what I was about to say, Patty, is that like there was this thing that happened at the end of the campaign, like that was like appreciation for each other. And both, I mean, I deeply appreciate Patty. I think Patty knew that before this election, but I did a lot of leaning on Jenny during this election. <laughs> I did a lot of leaning back and I deeply appreciate other journalists just appreciating each other. And like, if you don't have somebody to lean on and if you don't have somebody to sort of give you a gut check, I think about how many times I called Patty saying like, can you just give me a gut check on this and make sure I'm not screwed? We shadow edited each other. I mean, that's what you do. Yeah. I just think that's enormously helpful and realizing that you are, that you almost always have a team. No, I mean, that you should have a team behind you to rely on and to back each other up has been just a really poignant reminder for me. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Patty. Thank you. Thank this you. Super fun. Was great. Thanks for joining us. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua Williams and me, Alicia Menendez. Virginia Lora is our managing producer. Cedric Wilson is our producer. Carolina Rodriguez mixed this episode. Manuela Bedoya is our social media editor. We love hearing from you. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. And remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you are listening. And please, please leave a review. It is one of the fastest, easiest ways to help us grow as a community.
a little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.